Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Our series is called Going Pro, and uh, if you are at New Spring for the first time, you're probably thinking, what kind of church have I just found myself in, you know? <laughs> Pastor's wearing a football jersey, I, and I've, you know, had a different experience this week, and the last weekend, last week I wore the New Spring jersey, you know, the New Spring blue thing. This week I wore this jersey, and people have been explaining to me whether or not I wore the right jersey. I didn't have that last week, but this week people have been nice enough to let me know whether I picked the right uh, jersey. And I keep telling them, I know nothing about football. I see a couple of 15s down there. Hey, how's it going? Good to see you. Um, I want to make sure that I picked the right jersey, you know, um, and, uh, uh, but I still know nothing about football. I'm sorry. I feel really bad about it, but I don't. Um, so my dad picked this out, which tells you that he is finally firmly ensconced in Wichita uh, because he didn't pick out a Dallas Cowboys jersey. It's really surprising to me. I figured it would have a star, a blue star on it somewhere. Anyhow, it's wonderful to talk about Proverbs, one of my favorite books in the Bible. I hope it's one of your favorites too. If it's not, maybe you just haven't had a chance to really get in uh, and enjoy the wisdom that is packed into, crammed into really this book. Because you're going to find that if you open up the book of Proverbs, you're going to find just simple statements, sometimes phrases, sometimes a sentence, but you'll read it and you'll think, wow, I could probably spend a few hours just digging into the depth that is in this one sentence, really powerful stuff in the book of Proverbs. It's a book of wisdom, a, a guidebook for how to live a wise life. And when uh, we did the first Going Pro series, which is 10 years ago, 2011, my dad came up with this brand because he thought we could play around with that word Proverbs a little bit and think of it as pro-verbs. Remember in school they said a verb is something that you do, it's an action. Uh, so Proverbs is things that pros do. Uh, and, and that kind of makes sense because the whole book of Proverbs is about how to do things well, uh, even when you're up against a difficult circumstance. As a matter of fact, we could call that the definition of going pro, that a pro is somebody who is exceptionally successful at doing exceptionally difficult things. And we need both of those, right, to be part of the definition or it's not a pro. We don't call somebody a pro if they're exceptionally successful at doing something exceptionally easy. For instance, there's not a professional potato chip eating league. If there was, I would join. Like, I would be all about that. Sign me up, right? But we don't get real excited about that because we don't get excited about doing really easy things. On the flip side, we also don't get excited about when somebody does something really hard, but they're not good at it. Like, that's, my, that's the definition of my golf game, right? Nobody comes out to watch me play golf. Like, I don't have a big cheering section. They don't come watch me in rapt attention to play golf because I'm so terrible at it, right? I have like a, what is it, a 300, 400 stroke handicap. So I get out there and chase the ball. It looks like hockey really for me when I get to the putting green. I just kind of just keep following the ball around until it goes in the hole. And so nobody's really impressed by that. Why? It is exceptionally difficult. Playing a golf game, that's hard, but I'm not very good at it. In order to be a pro, you both have to be successful and it has to be something hard. And we said last week, that's why we're so interested in spending time in the book of Proverbs is because you and I are called to do hard things, difficult things, challenging things. Last week I said being a parent is challenging. And the thing is, my kids are the sweetest kids in the whole world, but I don't care who you're raising, being a parent is going to be challenging. It's going to stretch you. 
you're going to find that it's not something that God gave you all of the tools for out of the box. You're going to have to work on some stuff to be a great parent. Just as being a great spouse is difficult, you're going to have to work to develop some of the skills that's necessary to be a great spouse. Handling your finances, making sure that you're making wise financial choices, that's not easy. And even, I was thinking about this last week and we mentioned this, that just keeping your testimony while the world is kind of just going nuts, like that's hard too. So, and in, in my concern is this. So the exceptionally difficult thing, that's already there. Like that's baked into life. We have that. But the question is, will I be exceptionally successful at doing those things? The really hard stuff, will I be really good at it? Well, the question is one that I think I find myself failing in some areas, but I'm like, I really want to work on this. I really want to do better. And that's why Proverbs is so helpful. The Bible says that the purpose of Proverbs is to teach people to live disciplined and successful lives to help them to do what is right, just, and fair. Now, the word discipline here, and I talked a little bit about this um, a week ago. Discipline, a lot of times, we have very specific ideas in our head of what the word discipline means. In this case, discipline just means pointing yourself away from the wrong stuff and pointing yourself toward the right stuff. Or maybe we could just say it means going down the right path. And the Bible is saying that going down the right path is how we get to successful places. And Proverbs is going to tell us about which paths we want to go down and which paths we don't want to go down. And that's why we're going to be spending time there. And we're going to look at it kind of taking two different, a, a sort of a dual approach. And we talked about this before. We're going to use Proverbs like the playbook because it's not necessarily, Proverbs doesn't give us a bunch of stories. It doesn't give us a bunch of examples. It just gives us the facts. This is how life works. But we also kind of want to see it play out in real life. So we're going to look at the life of Joseph, and we're going to kind of treat that like the highlight reel. This is a story that shows you what it looks like when this wisdom is being put into place. And Joseph was a person who really exuded wisdom in his life, and we're going to sort of bank on that a little bit and really appreciate that look that both comes from the playbook and the highlight reel. Now, last week, we talked a little bit about Joseph's life. And he started life out at a disadvantage. He was born into a very dysfunctional family. I'm sure nobody here has been in any kind of a dysfunctional family at any point in time, right? But he came into a very dysfunctional family. Uh, and it was a family where favorites were being played. And I don't know, in, in all seriousness, I don't know if you've grown up in a, in a house where people played favorites, but it's terrible for everybody. Nobody wins in a family where favorites are being played. And that's exactly what Joseph's experience was. Because his dad had multiple wives. It was never God's plan. And trust me, it did not work out well. Um, his dad had multiple wives. And as a result, he had a, he had a lot of sons. He had one favorite wife, one favorite son. Joseph happened to be the favorite son. So even though he was the favorite son, it didn't work out well for him because the favoritism his dad paid to him messed up his relationship with all of his brothers. And they hated him. On top of that, his brothers were a hot mess. They kept doing stupid stuff. And, and Joseph's dad would consistently send Joseph out there to check on his brothers. And they didn't like being babysat by baby brother. Um, they didn't like that baby brother got this coat of many colors that basically said he's the new supervisor and now they have to work for their little brother. I mean, there's a lot of things that went wrong. One of the things was Joseph kept going around talking about how he had these dreams about how someday he was going to be in charge of the whole family, which they also did not appreciate because he was not in the birth hierarchy. He did not deserve that. And that's not the way that they felt like things should go. And so they got so upset with him and they collaborated with their anger so much, and their anger ping-ponged off each other enough that they actually worked themselves up to the point where they wanted to kill him. And so they start to kill him, but 
in a moment of conscience, one of the brothers says, well, let's, you know, if, if, if we could do something short of killing him, that might be better. Like, for instance, if we were to sell him to these slave traders, as if treating another human being like property is any less devaluing a person's life than to take them out. I, I think that was cr- ridiculous that a brother thought that somehow he was doing this person less of a disservice by selling him into slavery, but that's a talk for another day. But so Joseph ends up going from the favored son to being a slave headed to Egypt. He's got shackles on his wrists. He's being taken off to a country that he's never been to before. He doesn't know where he's going to live, who he's going to be serving. He doesn't know how to speak the language. That would be scary, wouldn't it? I mean, he, he doesn't know what the customs are. And basically everything that was good about his life is now gone. And we said that he somehow managed to, re, to, to be resilient in the middle of that situation. He ends up in Potiphar's house. Potiphar was way up in the military in Egypt. He was a high-ranking military official. And Joseph ends up in Potiphar's home. And we said, man, Joseph really did well in Potiphar's home. He started all the way down at the bottom of the org chart and somehow worked his way up to the top guy in Potiphar's house, overseeing all of Potiphar's stuff, all of his household and all that. And that's not uncommon for Joseph. Joseph always brings his A game, no matter what kind of situation you put him in. He always seems to work his way up through the ranks. That was definitely the case here. But you also know from last week that even though things went well for him in Potiphar's household, he also had a little bit of a problem there in Potiphar's house. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. Last week, we kind of did that Google Earth flyby. We were taking that sort of 30,000-foot look at Joseph's life. We're going to get a little bit more focused now on what happened to Joseph when he was in Potiphar's house. So the Bible says in Genesis 39, Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. And with Joseph there, he didn't worry about a thing except the food uh, that he ate. So Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man. We'll camp out there for a second. So we have these two lines of, of, uh, of records from the ancient history. We have the Bible, which is inherently trustworthy, and we know we can trust what the Bible says, but we also have other ancient documents that have been passed down from generation to generation in the Jewish culture, and there are some of those documents that reference the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife, and they're much more detailed than what is in the Bible, and they don't argue with what's in the Bible, so it's an interesting read. And one of the things that those records say is that Potiphar's wife became so smitten with Joseph, she just did not know what to do with herself. And she, uh, she played a couple of manipulative games. One of the things she did is she tried to get, she, she, said, she told Joseph she wanted him to teach her about his God, hoping that that would be an end for her. She, she threatened to commit suicide later on uh, if he didn't sleep with her. She's trying to do all kinds of stuff to kind of get him in the relationship, very manipulative. But apparently she just really got depressed about the fact that this wasn't happening. And her friends, the ladies in her circle, started to go, why are you so depressed? She said, come over to my house and I will show you. (laughs) And apparently she had Joseph serve them with a platter of fruit. And the the tradition in the ancient texts, it says that as the ladies were peeling the fruit with knives, they were so transfixed with Joseph that they cut their hands and didn't even realize they cut their hands, right? So he must have been pretty good looking. I don't know. I mean, I'm assuming if uh, if you're hurting yourself, you don't even realize it. And and so Potiphar's wife, the Bible says, soon began to look at him lustfully. and, And Bible scholars tell us that this could literally be translated. She could not take her eyes off of him. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. And by the way, this is a good translation as well. This was not a romantic request. This was a command in the Egyptian culture. And this is not right. 
I mean, this is so far from right, it's crazy. But in the Egyptian culture, it was thought that if a man had a female servant, she had to be sexually available to him. And Potiphar's wife is saying it should work this way as well. So we've got this guy in the house. I want to sleep with him. If I tell him uh, that I want to sleep with him, he has to do it. But he wouldn't do it. Joseph refused. Look, he told her. And by the way, before I read what Joseph says, I do want you to kind of pay attention to what he says. And also some of the things you might think he might say that he didn't say. He says, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He's held back nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. She kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her. And he kept out of her way as much as possible, which by the way, this is really important. Sexual sin is one of those things that I think people have the impression that If I get close enough to sexual sin, my character is still going to override my circumstances. I'm a good person. I have a good character. I have a strong Christian character. If I get close enough to it, my character is going to override whatever situation I end up in. Can I tell you, after years of doing relationship counseling, I don't believe that for a second. I think if you put yourself in the right situation, your circumstances will override your character. There's There's something major to be said for not putting yourself in that situation. Not trusting yourself that I can get right up next to the line, but I won't cross the line. Because I will tell you, I have years of experience of talking to people that I I thought these are amazing people. And I would would understand why they would think they wouldn't cross the line. Because I think they do have great character. But you put yourself in the right situation, you will cross the line. So Joseph is staying out of her way as much as possible. He's not going to be around her if he can help it. One day, however, no one else was around when he went in to do his work. She came and grabbed him by his cloak, demanding, come on, sleep with me. Joseph tore himself away. By the way, this is literally Joseph running for his integrity. She has got him by the garment, and he is running for his integrity, saying, you know what, you can take my garment, you can take my position. By the way, there's significance in the garment. Just as when he was in Israel, and he's wearing the coat of many colors, that, or, or the long coat, we're not exactly sure from the scripture exactly what the meaning is there, but the coat that he was wearing was fancy, and that showed that he was the boss, he would have been wearing some sort of garb in Egypt that proved that he was now the boss in Potiphar's house. His brothers ripped off his coat because they didn't like him. And now she's ripping off his coat because he won't do the wrong thing. It is literally, he is willing to turn loose of the position if it means he can keep his integrity. I'm wondering what would we be willing to turn loose of if it means we can keep our integrity? What would we be willing to say goodbye to if it means we can continue to keep the integrity of our relationship with others and with God intact. When she saw that she was holding his cloak and he had fled, she called out to her servants. Soon all the men came running. Look, she said, my husband has brought this Hebrew slave. She was a racist as well. Honestly, she was. She, he brought this Hebrew slave here to make fools of us. He came into my room to rape me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream, he ran outside and got away, but he left his cloak behind with me. She kept the cloak with her until her husband came home. Then she told him her story. That Hebrew slave you brought into our house tried to come in and fool around with me, she said. But when I screamed, I mean, tried to come and fool around with me. She wished he would. (laughs) But when I screamed, he ran outside leaving his cloak with me. We're going to talk in a minute about what we can learn about Joseph being in prison. We can learn about Joseph's resilience in the middle of these situations. But... And, and perhaps I'm going too off the beaten path to, to talk about this for a second, but I would like you to take notice for a minute of what Joseph did not say. Because I think sometimes in the Christian community, we've read and reread and reread these stories so much that we, 
we start to lose track of the emotion of the moment and what it must have been like to be in the middle of that situation. So I want you to notice that Joseph did not say, I don't want to. Nowhere in the story will you see Joseph saying, I'm not, I I wouldn't want to do that, right? I mean, think about this. Joseph was at an age that if he was still in Israel, if his brothers hadn't sold him into slavery, if he was still at home with his father, he would have been married by now. And he would have been experiencing the joy of sexual expression in this relationship with his wife. But he doesn't have a wife and he is unlikely to have one anytime soon. And so now he has a woman who is willing to make himself available to her, to make herself available to him in that way. And he's saying no to it. It's not, I don't think, because he didn't want to. I think he probably did want to. Christian, there are gonna be times in your life where you have a divided heart and there is a part of you that knows you should not do something, but there is a part of you that really wants to do it. And those are the moments when your destiny is forged. Your destiny is cast in moments where part of your heart wants to go one direction and part of your heart wants to go the other direction and you tell your heart which direction you're gonna go in. He also didn't say, you're not attractive to me. I don't know, I mean, I I read what ancient literature scholars tell us, and and based off of that, I'm going to assume Potiphar was probably a man in in middle age to perhaps even a little later in life. My hunch is he had a young trophy wife that he loved to just put on his arm and take around and show her off to other people and say, look how good looking my wife is. My hunch is she was very attractive, and I don't think Joseph was lost on that, right? I mean, she was hot, he was hot. I mean, isn't that the cultural thought? You're hot, I'm hot, why not, right? That Like, of course, you know, I mean, she's attractive. Let's do this thing, right? But he doesn't say you're not attracted to me. He doesn't say I wouldn't enjoy sleeping with you because you know what? He probably would. As a matter of fact, we live in a culture right now that suggests if I would enjoy something, then that must tell me something about who I am, about my identity, and what's right for me. If I enjoy it, then it must be right for me. It used to be a joke to say, If it feels so good, it can't be wrong. We now as a culture have adopted that as our cultural motto. And he didn't say it's not difficult for me to say no. Because it probably was very difficult for him to say no. But I want you to look at what he did say. And we could have a talk on every single one of these points. We're really going to camp out on the last one. But the first thing he said is, my master trusts me with everything. What he's saying is, this is not just a job. Oh man, I wish I could preach this well. He's saying, this isn't just a job to me. This is a stewardship. Now, we don't talk a lot about stewardship anymore, but what stewardship means is somebody has given something to me, not for it to be mine, but for it to be something entrusted to me so that I can do something with it for the person that gave it to me. So if I were to invest my money with someone, I'm expecting them to do something with it, not because I've given it to them and I don't expect it back. I want them to do something for me with what I have invested in them. And that's what stewardship is all about. So Joseph said, look, you don't get it. You're acting like this job is mine to play around with and to take a risk like this with, but I can't take a risk like that with it. This has been entrusted to me. This is a responsibility. This is a stewardship. And someday God is gonna ask me what I have done with what he has given me to steward. I'm married to one of the most beautiful ladies in the world. I'm married to one of the sweetest ladies in the world. She brings joy to my life. She absolutely, I can't imagine what my life would would be like if she wasn't with me. But I will tell you this, 
She is not just there to bring joy to my life. God didn't give me Wendy because he said, I think Jonathan needs something to make his life wonderful. God gave Wendy to me as a stewardship because I now have a responsibility to contribute to her life because God is someday going to account for, Jonathan, what did you bring to Wendy's life? I entrusted Wendy to you. What did you bring to her life? My kiddos bring joy to my life in, in ways you can't even imagine, but that is not why God sent them to me. Someday God is going to call me account for that stewardship. And he's going to say, Jonathan, what did you contribute to Cheyenne and Summer's life? I I invested them in you. I gave them to you as a stewardship. Now, what did you do to grow them? What did you do to invest in them? And Joseph's saying, this is way more serious than you think it is. This is all about fooling around and having fun to you, but this is about responsibility to me. Second thing is, he said, you're off limits. Did your, is that a thing? Did your parents say that? Like that's, my parents used to say that's off limits to you, right? And it, there, there almost was like there are things that you have access to and, and there are things that are off limits. You don't have access to that. And I think that one of the challenges in our culture is that we believe that nothing should be off limits. If we want access to something, it should be something that we have access to. And the interesting thing in the scripture is often in a situation where something is off limits, God gives people access to a lot of stuff but there's one thing they don't have access to. We can go back to the Garden of Eden. And you have Adam and Eve, they have access to the Garden of Eden, but there's one thing they don't have access to. Isn't it funny that often it's the one thing we don't have access to that suddenly becomes our obsession? And that's the deal, right? Joseph is saying, if you go back to the passage, he says, everything in this house is at my disposal except you. You're the one thing that's off limits. So no, I'm not gonna go to an off limits place with you. He also says this would be a wicked thing to do. Today in 2021 in the United States of America, there is the idea that there is nothing wicked that can happen sexually behind closed doors between two consenting adults. Can I tell you something? Joseph is saying, even if I wanted to, and I know you want to, it would still be wicked. The scripture is telling us, yes, there is such a thing as a wicked thing that happens between two consenting adults sexually. He's saying there are some, there are some things that are wicked. And that in of itself is a profound statement in our day and age. And then the last thing, and this is where we're going to spend our time, doing this would injure my relationship with God. He says, it would be a sin against God. Now, would it have been a sin against Potiphar? You betcha it would have been. But he's saying it's even so much bigger than that. He's saying, I could lose my relationship with Potiphar, but I'd be okay. I can lose my relationship with you, and I'd be okay. I could lose this place that I work, and I would be okay. But if I lose my relationship with God, I'm in big trouble. You say, Jonathan, are you saying he wouldn't have a future in heaven with God? I'm I'm saying once a person is God's child, he's always God's child. But I tell you what, it is possible to walk in an opposite direction of God. You'll still be God's child, but you'll be out of the umbrella of his blessing. And Joseph's saying, I can't afford to do that. I'm not going to leave God's blessing. I'm going to stay right where God wants me to be. And as much as, you know, he said, honey, you, you may look hot, but it is not worth it to me. Five minutes of pleasure with you is not worth losing my destiny. Let's take a minute and look at the trajectory of Joseph's life. Because I'm a visual learner, visual thinker. So when I read the story of Joseph, and I've done that a few times for this series, I kind of have this visual thing going in my head about the trajectory of Joseph's life. And I've kind of taken a simplified version of what I drew out in my notebook, and I've put it here. So we start off, Joseph starts off as the favorite son, and then he kind of goes down, and now he's the hated brother, so he's sort of lost a little bit. He loses some more ground, now he's the, the target of a murder plot, his brothers are trying to murder him. Then he goes down a little bit more. He's sold as a slave. 
But then life starts to look up a little bit. He's a successful servant. Then he goes up a little bit more and he's promoted to a manager. And then he's promoted to a general manager and he's the CEO of Potiphar's house. But then he gets this unwanted attention from Potiphar's wife. And then she accuses him of rape. And then he goes to jail. And we haven't even covered this yet in the series. But in jail, Joseph is going to, and he's been there for quite a while, he's going to encounter a a man who could speak to the Pharaoh on his behalf. And this man promises to speak to the Pharaoh on his behalf to help him understand that Joseph has been falsely accused. And then that guy forgets him. And Joseph waits in prison every day hoping that that'll be the day that the breakthrough moment happens. That he doesn't even know there's nothing happening on the other side because that guy has totally forgotten him. So he ends up all the way down here forgotten in prison. And if if any of us were to look at the story at that point and we didn't know what the future was, we would think, how much worse can it get? But if you read the end of the story, you know that at the end, he shoots right up to the ruler of Egypt. Pharaoh is going to end up putting him in charge of all of Egypt. And God is going to position him that way. I used to think of it as a roller coaster. Like I said, I'm a visual thinker. So in my mind, I kind of have this trajectory of Joseph's life. And if I were to show you the the outline that I have in my notebook, this one is simplified. But if you were to see the outline in my notebook, it's a lot more like this. You know, I don't think it's a roller coaster. I've changed my mind. I think what it is is a series of rebounds. I mean, Joseph, life slams him down and somehow he bounces back up. And then life slams him down again, and somehow he bounces back up. And it almost seems like, I don't know if you guys think this from looking at this, whether this feels the same way to you as it feels to me, but it almost seems like the harder life slams him down, the further he rebounds. And that's kind of what I want in life. I think that's what it takes to be successful in exceptionally difficult circumstances, is to be able to rebound when life slams you down. So I just want to talk for a minute about how does that work? And let's go to the book of Proverbs, right? We haven't even been there yet. It's going pro. Let's, let's take a look at a verse in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 24, 16 says this. No matter how many times you trip them up, God-loyal people, check this out, they don't stay down long. The, isn't the equivalent of that to say that a God-loyal person rebounds? They come back up. It says soon they're back up on their feet while the wicked end up flat on their faces. Now I'm going to try to make a case for the difference between a person who rebounds and a person who ends up flat on their face. But give me a minute. We're going to kind of go through a few pieces of scripture and then maybe I'll give you an illustration that may make it a little easier to remember when you leave today. Why does somebody like Joseph rebound? Well, if we go to Genesis 39, this is when Joseph ends up in Potiphar's house. Notice what the first important fact is here. The Lord was with Joseph. So, so this means because the Lord was with Joseph, he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. So the reason the rebound happened for Joseph is the Lord was with him. At least that's what the scripture seems to indicate. So I'm going to keep on reading in this passage. So the Bible says the Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph. Okay, so what does it mean in the Bible when you see the same thing repeated twice? It means wake up, pay attention. This is important, right? This is something that you need to pay attention to. The Lord was with Joseph, giving him success. So this is how he rebounded in everything that he did. And then we have Potiphar putting Joseph in prison because of the whole Potiphar's wife thing. So he takes Joseph and throws him into the prison where the king's prisoners were held, and there he remained. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him his faithful love, and the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. So do you see this kind of theme here? That because God was with Joseph, he rebounded. Well, that's interesting. 
And in order to make sure that we really have this clear in our heads, I have to do something I probably shouldn't do, which is I'm going to look at a completely different Bible story. I mean, we're already in Proverbs, and we're in the story of Joseph, so I'm not trying to like take us to a million different places, but we're going to go just really briefly to the book of Judges. Now, here's what the book of Judges is all about. This, this is a time where God's people are very fickle. Half the time they're acting like they want to follow God. The rest of the time they're acting like they don't want to follow God. When they don't follow God, what will happen is another people group will end up conquering them and they'll go into a, a sort of captivity. And then they will repent and they'll tell God they want to straighten up. And God will bring up a judge, which is not a king, but a leader who's going to help them, uh, first of all, get their lives straight with God and then help them conquer the people group that has taken them over. And so they'll be back in, uh, in freedom. And they'll go from freedom to captivity back and forth. And it's always the judge who is helping them get back to where they need to be. And there's a particular judge that many of us have heard of. It's in the book of Judges. And we're talking about Samson. Now, the reason that we think a lot about Samson is he had kind of a cool superpower, really, and that is that God gave him superhuman strength. He was stronger than anybody, and as a result, uh, he was the guy that you wanted to have on your side when the Philistines, their enemies, would come after them. And the Philistines didn't know what to do because they didn't have anybody that could go up against Samson because he was so strong, but they didn't know why he was strong. The reason he was strong is because God had given him strength, but God needed to make sure that his people understood that real strength comes from obedience. So what he told Samson's parents is, there are some things you're going to have to do and some things you're going to not do. And by not doing what I've told you not to do, and by doing what I've told you to do, Samson is going to have strength. And one of the important things that he said is, you're not going to cut his hair. So Samson had some long hair, right? And so I remember being a kid in Sunday school. You remember, some of y'all remember flannel graph. If you don't remember flannel graph, you're probably better off. But one, one of my uh, Sunday school teachers would always have lightning bolts in Samson's hair. Like, this is where his power was. His power was not in his hair. I don't care what kind of product he put on it. There was no power in his hair. The power was in God showing that he blesses obedience. But the problem is, after 20 years of judging God's people, Samson's same old problem that he had as a teenager had, had resurfaced. As a teenager, he'd had a soft spot for the wrong kind of women, women that were as far away from God as possible, but Samson was into looks. So he would find the cutest girl out there and he did not care what her position was on God or how she felt about following God. So he would always get involved with the wrong woman. 20 years down the road, he still hasn't learned his lesson. He gets involved with this woman named Delilah. Well, Delilah not only is now in a relationship with Samson, but she also is in a relationship with the Philistines. So she got this connection. The Philistines kept, keep telling Delilah, you got to figure out why he's so strong and what we can do to make that problem go away. So she keeps playing this little game with him where she's asking him, you know, what's your strength? And, and he doesn't want to lose her, but he also doesn't want to tell her because he doesn't completely trust her because he knows he's a moron and keeps going after the wrong kind of women. And so he keeps giving her the wrong answers. And what happens is she'll, she'll do whatever it is that he says will take away his strength, and then the Philistines will come in, and she'll act all shocked. Oh, my goodness, the Philistines are here, Samson. What are you going to do? And, of course, he's still strong, so he'll break through whatever it is that they've done, and, and he'll defeat the Philistines. And they keep going back and forth with this thing, and finally Samson realizes he's either going to lose this destructive relationship and do the right thing, or he's going to do the wrong thing and hang on to this destructive relationship. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen people make the wrong choice on that. He decides, I'm going to stay in this destructive relationship and do the wrong thing. And so he told her that if his head were shaved, he would lose his strength. So she lulls him to sleep on her lap and cuts off his hair and calls in the Philistines. 
And this is where we pick up the story, right? This is in Judges 16, 20. Then she cried out, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. And when he woke up, he thought, I will do as before and shake myself free. What is he saying? I'll rebound from this. I've rebounded before. When stuff has been, when I've been under terrible pressure, when I've been under the gun, I've always been able to rebound. But what does it say? But he did not realize what? That the Lord had left him. See, with Joseph, we don't think he's going to succeed. How's he going to succeed in Potiphar's house? But the Lord was with him, so he did. How's he going to succeed in prison? It doesn't look like he would, but the Lord was with him, so he did. Samson, we expect him to succeed. Everybody does. He's always been strong. He's always been able to take care of this. But now he can't take care of business. Why? Because the Lord is not with him anymore. Bought a couple of basketballs yesterday because you know how much I love props. Anytime I can come up to the, the platform with props, it's a good day for me. So I have two basketballs here. They are essentially the same basketball, right? I I bought them from the same place. It's the same model, same manufacturer. Um, But one of these is ready to go and one of these is not ready to go. If I exert pressure on this one, it bounces back up. If I exert pressure on this one, well, it's like most of the basketballs in my garage. Um, You say, Jonathan... That's really easy to explain. One of those basketballs has air in it, one of them doesn't. I mean, it's one of those things. The box that these basketballs came in said it came with no accessories. So they're right there on the box, no accessories. Um, But the truth is, this one did come with an accessory. It came with a certain number of cubic centimeters of air. So the fact that it came with air means that when I exert pressure on it, it rebounds. What is the scripture saying to us when it says a God-loyal person, no matter how many times you trip them up, they get back up again, But a person who's not loyal to God, the wicked fall flat on their face. What is the Bible saying? That when we have God with us, we rebound. But if we don't have God with us, it's the same person, but we lose our capability to rebound. Sometimes it's hard, I think, when we we talk about resilience, being a resilient person, because we're so focused as a culture on personality that it's easy to go, well, that's just not my personality. That's not how I am. I don't bounce back. I'm a person who really takes things hard, you know, and it's it's just really, it's not, not something I do well to be able to get back up after a setback. But you know what? The truth is this is not about personality. That should be an encouragement. It's not about the person you are. It's about what is inside of you. As a matter of fact, that's the first point, that the rebound happens because of what is inside you. It is not you that makes the rebound happen, but the God that is inside you that makes the rebound happen. There's a couple of really exciting things about that, which is number one, if I am rebounding, it's because God is in me and God is doing a work inside the situation that I'm in. I've talked to people over this past two weeks that say, you know what, Jonathan, if you showed me on paper what I'd be going through right now, I'd think I'd never be able to make it. I would think I would just not be able to get up out of bed in the morning, but somehow I keep doing it. I keep waking up in the morning and I find God's grace is new every morning. His mercies are new every morning. I got some energy in my step. I don't know how I have energy in my step, but good stuff's happening. Well, the good news is that's not you. That's God and he's going to continue to do it for you. The even better news, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come right back to this at the very end of the talk, the even better news is if you're not rebounding, that does not mean something is wrong with you. That means you need more God in your life. 
Rebound happens because of what's inside you. Let's take a look at a few verses that talk about this. A couple days ago, I was doing a funeral for a precious new springer. And as I stood by that casket at the graveside, I read Psalm 23. Psalm 23 says this, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and actually a better translation would be, even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Right? So what that means is, and by the way, a lot of Bible scholars, and I I would be of this camp that would say that David wasn't saying, when I die, I won't fear evil. Um, I don't think David would have thought that he had any evil to fear when he died. I think what he's saying is when I go through the darkest valley of my life, and he could have, there, there is sort of mention of death there. So he could have meant when I have the death of a loved one, when I have to walk through the, the, the valley of loss, the deepest loss a person can experience. He's like, I'm not going to be scared. And the reason I'm not going to be scared is I'm going to rebound because God is with me. Not because I'm so good at rebounding, but because of what is in me. The apostle Paul said this, he said, we are pressed on every side by troubles, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're hunted down, but God hasn't abandoned us. We get knocked down, but then we get up again. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may what? Also be seen in our bodies. They're saying God is doing something in this world and one of the things that God wants people to see is he wants people to see that I do rebound and the reason that I rebound is that God is in me and they're gonna wonder what is in me that is not in their flat life that sits on the ground and they're gonna be inspired to want the same thing that's in me. I'm not knocking evangelism programs. I've been a part of a lot over the years, but I'll tell you what, the most powerful evangelism program is to live out the life of Jesus Christ in your life and let people see what that actually looks like. Paul said, we want the life of Jesus to be evident in our dying bodies. He says, look, my body is decaying, but I want... I want the nature of Jesus that renews itself every day to be apparent to people. I mean, my body's not doing too well. This should be like a Rogaine commercial. See how bad this is? It's really pathetic, right? As I get older, this body continues to deteriorate. You know what? That's going to continue because this tent that I live in is temporary. Someday the tent's going to be taken down. They're going to put it in a box, but the real me is going to live on forever. And the legacy that I live will be forever impacted by whether or not God was with me. If we go back a few verses, Paul says this, we now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. What does he mean we're we're like fragile clay jars? In the ancient world, clay jars were sort of the equivalent of cardboard boxes. You have cardboard boxes in your garage, you just store stuff in. That's what they would do in the ancient world. You just store regular old stuff in clay jars. They weren't valuable. But sometimes people would take their valuables, their jewelry or something like that, and store it in a clay pot because if a thief broke into your house, it would be the last place they would look for it. The, the, the cool thing that Paul is saying is, he's like, if you look at me from the outside, this would be the last place that you would expect for there to be something special going on on the inside. But God sometimes puts his treasure in clay jars. Sometimes God puts his treasure in a cardboard box. So you may look at me and go, all Jonathan's got is a cardboard box, but inside I have the Holy Spirit of the living God who's helping to instruct me and tell me what I need to do and where I need to go. And that is why I'm a cardboard box on the outside, but I'm a barrel of potential on the inside. Bible says no matter how many times you trip them up, a God-loyal person doesn't stay down long. They're back up on their feet. What does it mean to be God-loyal? I mean, that's not a phrase we use a whole lot, is it? 
to be God loyal. In John chapter 15, Jesus says this, you are my friends, and Bible scholars tell us that this could as easily be translated, you are devoted to me if you do what I command. He's saying if you follow my instructions, you're God loyal. Well, that's a bridge too far for a lot of our culture. I talk to a lot of people who say, Jonathan, uh, the Bible is a good book in that it has some good information in there, but my biggest problem with it is it's full of do's and don'ts. I mean, I read through it and it's all these instructions, do's and don'ts. I don't like that. It seems kind of controlling. It seems kind of manipulative, you know? And here's the deal. I will concede that the Bible is full of do's and don'ts. I'll give that to you. It's absolutely true, right? I'm a little bit of an of a, of a amateur photographer, and so I have a couple of DSLR cameras at home that I really like to take pictures with. And they both came with a two or 300 page manual, um, which they're great for going to sleep by. But I do try to read them, try to understand the, f- the functions and features of the camera. And I find that those books are full of do's and don'ts. Like they cons- consistently say, here's how you use the camera. Here's, here, here's how you do this. Here's how you don't do this. Don't put the camera under water. I read all that stuff I have never once in my spirit thought what narcissistic, controlling, manipulative jerks these people are that they are telling me what to do with my camera. It's my camera. I can throw it in the lake if I want to, right? And the funny thing is, that's absolutely true, is it not? It is my camera, and I can do whatever I want to with it. The do's and don'ts in that book are there because they design the camera and they know what will happen if I do those things. They know what will happen if I do the things they tell me to do, and they know what will happen if I do the things they tell me not to do. They understand what will lead to success and what will lead to failure, and that is why the book is full of do's and don'ts, and the Bible is no different. God designed you and me. He understands what will happen if we walk down path A. He understands what will happen if we walk down path B. So there are going to be plenty of moments when God says, don't go there. Don't go down path B because this is what's at the end of that road. Go down path A. And yes, I get how in our spirit we could say, why is somebody telling me what to do? But it is the benevolence of God. He is not a dictator. It is his love for us that says, I do not want to see my child go through something that is at the end of that road. I want to see you experience that one. So the rebound happens when I follow God's instructions. We're almost done here. I, I want to talk to somebody in this room, maybe a lot of people, because I think if I was listening to this message, I would be feeling this right now. This feeling that goes, you know, this is a great talk and it's all, you know, it's all wonderful, but I'm not enough of a Joseph to appreciate it. Uh, I've made a lot of mistakes. I've done a lot of stupid things. I haven't been that Joseph that says no to all the wrong things and says yes to all, all, the, all the right things. I, I, haven't, I have been that person who lands flat on my face and doesn't seem to be able to get back up. So this is not very encouraging for me. Like It feels like this is sort of a pep rally for people who do everything right, but I'm not one of those people that does everything right. I'm actually more of a Samson than I am a Joseph. Well, can I take you back to the story of Samson for just a minute? Because here's the deal. It was painful. And by the way, when we go down the wrong road, it's always going to be painful. There's going to be pain associated with it. The Bible says that the Philistines captured Samson and they gouged out his eyes and they took him to Gaza where he was bound with bronze chains and forced to grind grain in the prison. They literally unhooked the donkey and hooked him up to the, the grinding rig. And they did that first of all to embarrass him and second of all to keep him busy. And before long, and this is one of the most beautiful phrases in the entire scripture, before long his hair began to grow back. It would be incredibly discouraging to read the story of Joseph and to look at our own failures 
in light of that if it weren't for the fact that the God that we serve is the God of second chances. That God does not count you out because you've made a mistake, because you've been flat on your face. Did you notice that it doesn't, the Proverbs doesn't say that once you haven't been loyal to God, you will never get back up. It's talking about right now, right now, in this moment. Are you gonna make a choice to be God loyal? Because a God loyal person gets back up on their feet. It is a person who chooses not to be God loyal that stays down on the ground. So this is one time when your choice today has everything in the world to do with whether you bounce back tomorrow. His hair began to grow back and with it, his strength. And if you know the story, you know that Samson will eventually be called into a party. The Philistines have a party in a pavilion. They want Samson to come out because it's entertainment for them to poke fun at him in front of all of their friends. Samson comes out, he leans against the pillars that are holding up the pavilion. And in a last act of his life, he pulls those pillars down and it, just, and it kills everybody who's in the pavilion. The scripture says that in that moment, Samson killed more Philistines than he did in his entire life. Now you might say, Jonathan, that is a rough way to experience your greatest success. And I'd have to agree with you on that. But the principle is sound that you may experience your greatest rebound after your greatest failure. It may be after your biggest mistake, after your most stupid decision that you make, and we all make stupid decisions. It may be after the stupid decision that you make that it finally clicks and you go, you know what, I am ready to make a turnaround. You know, the, the word repentance is all, is all through the New Testament. We talk about repentance, and it's, it's a word that we don't use in our everyday language, and we don't talk about it very much. But the idea of repenting means, I've been walking down this road, and at some point or another, I realize that the road that I'm walking down is not a good one, and I'm headed for a bad destination, and it's hurting me, and it's hurting other people, and I finally come to that realization. I, I start to come to my senses, and I say, I don't want to go down this road anymore. And it may be difficult for me to turn around and go down that road, but that's the the choice that I'm making. And I make a turnaround and I start to go the opposite direction. And you know what? It's hard because every mile that I covered going in the wrong direction, I have to cover in reverse to go in the right direction. But if I'm willing to do it, the Bible says that it is at the moment that I turn in repentance that suddenly God is by my side and we walk together in the right direction. And so that's what the rebound happens when we say, you know what? I've been walking away from God. I'm ready to turn around and start walking with God. God is going to be in me and I'm going to experience my rebound moment. Even if I haven't been doing the right thing up till today, I'm always impressed by the fact that when Jesus talks to people about their past failures, there's always a focus on right now. People talk about the fact that Jesus would often say, go and sin no more. That is a statement about today and tomorrow. That is not a statement about the past. God is never about raking people over the coals for what they've done in the past. The past is done and we can't change it. The thing is, what are we gonna do today? Where do we stand with God today? And where are we going with him in the future? I'm going to ask everybody to bow their heads with me for just a moment. If you're in this room and you say, Jonathan, I'm a, I'm a God follower, but I've made some poor choices. I'm that person who's feeling like I'm on the ground right now, flat on my face and can't get back up. I really want to do that repentance thing. I want to make a turnaround. I want to start walking with God again. Can I just lead you in a prayer? You can say anything that you want to God, but this is just an idea of a prayer you could pray. You can follow along with this silently in your head if you'd like. Here we go. Dear Jesus, I've made some wrong choices. I haven't been walking with you and I really regret that. I see how some choices I've made have hurt me and hurt others. I'm ready to make a turnaround today. 
I don't know yet all of what that means, but I'm going to be loyal to you. I'm going to follow you and I'm going to do whatever you ask me to do. Thank you, Jesus, for giving me a second chance. Heads are still bowed, eyes are still closed. If you're in this room and you'd say, Jonathan, you know, everything you've said sounds wonderful, but I don't even have a relationship with God and I don't even know how I would get started. Can I tell you that the Bible tells us that Jesus has already done all the heavy lifting? By, sending, by God sending his son to die on the cross for you, it paid for all of your sins, past, present, and future. God has done everything he possibly can do. There's only one thing he can't do, and that is say yes for you, because then you wouldn't have a choice. So he waits. The Bible says he stands at the door of our heart, and he waits to hear from us. So if you feel that tugging on your heart, and you're ready to say yes to Jesus, that right now, this could be your moment. I'm going to say the words to a simple prayer. You can follow along. Again, you don't need to say this out loud. And you can have it settled before you leave this building today. Here we go. Dear Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you died and came back to life for me. I know I do wrong things. I know I can't get to heaven on my own. Today I accept your free gift of heaven and forgiveness. I believe in you, Jesus. In your name, amen. Look this way really quickly, would you? If you just prayed that prayer with me, we want to get you started in your new walk with God. If you would text PRAY to 97000, head out to guest services. They have a box for you with some really cool stuff in it to get you started on your new walk with God. Thanks so much for being with us. We'll see you next week for Going Pro. Our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.